welcome back to the Tasty Morsels of Critical Care podcast, a meandering monologue through critical care exam preparation. The aminoglycosides see themselves as a little bit special. Not content with producing deafness and killing kidneys, they've also demanded awkward dosing schedules, a need for regular levels, and even their own section on most drug cardexes that I've seen. They are indeed the divas of the antibiotic world. That being said, they're a real workhorse in the intensive care unit and it's hard to say that you've done due diligence on a septic crashing patient without the ubiquitous shot of gent that has wormed its way into the medical nomenclature. In the ED and in the intensive care unit, the only aminoglycosides in town, really, are gentamicin and its lesser used but much respected big brother, amikacin. In terms of mechanism, these drugs work by inhibiting bacterial protein synthesis by binding to the 30S subunit of the ribosome. So the proceeding is one of those statements that sounds somewhat impressive when delivered in a viva, but is often quickly followed by a blank look of panic if anyone asks a follow-up question. These drugs are a good example of concentration-dependent killing, and in brief this means that we need a nice high peak concentration of the drug well above the MIC, the minimum inhibitory concentration, of the bug in question. This is in distinction to the beta-lactams, which are classified as time-dependent antibiotics, where the time above the MIC is more correlated with efficacy. Aminoglycosides also come with an excellent post-antibiotic effect, where the growth of the bug is inhibited even when the levels of the drug are below the MIC. The idea here seems to be that the aminoglycosides bind irreversibly to ribosomes, so even when you can't measure any aminoglycoside in the blood, it's still working away in stopping any microbial growth. Their most common use in critical care is as an adjunctive antibiotic for aerobic gram-negative bacilli. Perhaps the commonest context will be um, someone with septic shock with the belly as public enemy number one. Um, And the other common use is in sepsis of urinary origin, where the aminoglycosides come in particularly handy as they are excreted unchanged by the kidneys, so that the concentrations within the urinary tract can be incredibly high. They are usually used in combination with other antibiotics, but interestingly gentamicin remains first-line therapy for plague, which is probably worth keeping in mind uh, for when the inevitable apocalypse comes and the following societal collapse in the return to the Middle Ages. The aminoglycosides penetrate poorly in the acidic environments of the bronchial secretions in the lung, and they're thought to be poorly effective here. They also have poor penetration to the CSF and biliary tree. I've never been entirely clear when to reach for amikacin over its much more commonly used brother in gentamicin. This is of course the reason why we have timely and excellent input from our micro and infectious disease colleagues. But what I've gleaned suggests that amikacin has a role particularly in those patients carrying all those alphabet soup labels of ESBL or KPC etc. Our main concern with these drugs is going to be their toxicity, namely to the kidneys and the ears. With regards to the kidneys, the ubiquitous presence of the green machine, the CRRT, has allowed us to prioritise killing bugs before preserving renal function. And I know we'd like to have both, but given that we can replace the kidneys, then we tend to sacrifice them on the altar of microbial killing. As a result, we have a somewhat laissez-faire attitude to the nephrotoxicity, which is probably not optimal for our patients. The ototoxicity is somewhat more opaque to us in the ICU as patients are rarely well enough to express their vestibular or cochlear disturbance to us and this is something much more likely to be picked up on the ward following the ICU stay. Our best tool to avoid these toxicities is careful dosing, regular levels and stopping them whenever we've identified the right bug and the right antibiotics for them. And thankfully, aminoglycosides are one of the few drugs you'll be asked to review every day in terms of dosing and levels and hopefully you have a chance to stop them. Finally, there is the rarely reported phenomenon of neuromuscular block following aminoglycoside administration. However, its rarity outside those with myasthenia gravis makes uh, gentamicin very unlikely to be a serious competitor when it comes to the rock versus sucks debate. 
The references from this post largely come from uh, the range physiology post on post-antibiotic effect and the rest of it was gleaned from an excellent up-to-date article on the amino glycosides.